Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Upside Down or Right Side Up. All right, so last week, if you were with us, um, you remember our respect level for Paul and Silas went to a whole nother level as we saw their godly response to a really difficult situation there in the city of Philippi. And so after they were publicly beaten for no reason, they had done nothing wrong, but after they were publicly beaten and then thrown into the inner prison, their feet were fastened in the stocks, right? Their backs were bleeding. And around midnight, what did they do? Do you guys remember? They didn't curse and complain. They didn't whine and worry. They weren't bummed and bitter. What they did is that they prayed and sang hymns to God. Now, you can't do that unless you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so they, obviously, Paul and Silas, had the Holy Spirit living in them, giving them joy in the midst of their trial, and they made music to God in the middle of the night. And you remember, God provided bass for their music by sending a great earthquake. Everything started to shake, the prison doors come open, and the prisoners' shackles were loosened. And so you remember, the jailer wakes up, because of the shaking, the earthquake, and he looks and see that his prison is not secure, and so he freaks out. He assumes everybody has escaped, all the prisoners are gone, and what he does in a panic is he's like, I gotta take my own life because there's no way I'm gonna get killed by my superior officer for falling asleep on the job. Right before he falls on his sword, he hears the voice of Paul coming out from the inner prison, and Paul says to him, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And so all of a sudden, the jailer, in fear and trembling, runs into the inner prison, and sure enough, there's Paul and Silas. He falls on the floor before them, and he says to them, and I quote, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question, by the way. That's a question I wish everybody would ask themselves at least some point in your life. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas responded, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And sure enough, the jailer and his family accepted Christ. They, they, they believed on Christ and they were saved. And then they followed the Lord after that in baptism. And so the story of the Philippian jailer is really one of the most inspiring stories in all the New Testament. If you weren't here last weekend, I really encourage you to go back and listen. Lots of practical application for our lives. And by the way, you can listen either by going to our website um, and clicking on uh, listen, or you can go and download the podcast. And so all these messages are available uh, through podcast. If you go to the podcast app and you type in Calvary PSL, all these messages are available to you. And so today we're picking it up in chapter 17, verse 1. And so if you're new to Calvary, this is what we do. We go through the scriptures verse by verse. And today we're on verse 1 of chapter 17. And so look at it. Now, when, and what is the pronoun there? They. Do you see that? Now, when, they. Not now, when, we, they. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you this. Who's the author of the book of Acts? Luke. And so Luke was saying we before because he was with Paul and Silas and Timothy and the team. But now Luke stays in Philippi. A lot of scholars believe that's where he lived. 
And he's now saying that Paul and Silas are leaving. So now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. All right, so let's look at our map, get our geographical bearings once again. And so Paul and Silas, last week in chapter 16, in the city of Philippi, and now they're leaving, and they're heading south, about 30 miles or so, to the city of Amphipolis. And so 30 miles, I don't know if they walked or not, but if they walked, you know, if you do three miles an hour, that's about 10 hours. And so after 10 hours of walking, you're ready to go to bed, right? So they spend the night in Amphipolis. They get up the next morning, and they go another 30 miles or so to the south um, to Apollonia. They're worn out. Another 10 hours of walking. They go to sleep. They wake up the next day. Now they're heading northwest up to the city of Thessalonica. That's where we're, the majority, 95% of the message today is gonna be from that city there on your map. By the way, a thriving city today. Yesterday I talked to one of the people in the church and he was showing me his pictures from a recent trip to Greece and he loves Thessalonica. Um, he was there. And so that's where we are today in our message. At the end of the message today, we are gonna briefly look at Paul's uh, time in Berea and then he's gonna get on a boat and get out of town uh, because how many of you guys know trouble follows Paul wherever he goes? And so he gets on the ship and he heads all the way down. I can't wait. Next week we are going to talk about Paul in Athens. And so arguably the greatest Christian intellect, Paul, is going to stand on Mars Hill and he's going to address the Areopagus, um, um, the intellectual elites of the day. And so that's going to be a message all in itself next week. And then in chapter 18 he goes over to Corinth. But back up to Thessalonica... And so that's where we are today. And so when Paul and Silas arrived in that town, they saw a lot of people. Thessalonica was a very large city uh, for its time. They're in the province of Macedonia, there in the Roman Empire. It boasted about 200,000 people. And so, by the way, comparable with Port St. Lucie. I don't know if you know this, but our city, uh, within the city limits, as of 2019, we're now up to about 190,000 people in Port St. Lucie. And so in the first century, Thessalonica, about the same size as our town. So they get to Thessalonica and there's a synagogue. And so now please look at verse two. It says, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the what? From the scriptures. Paul's opening his Bible in church. Wow, what a lesson for today. Verse three, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So after arriving at Thessalonica, he goes into the synagogue since he has the proper credentials, Paul's a scholar, he's a rabbi, he's a former Pharisee. They're like, okay, you can have the platform to teach for three Sabbaths. And so here's the question. What did Paul teach on those three consecutive Saturdays? Did he do a three-part series on felt needs and never open the Bible? You know, Saturday number one, title of the message, how to have a positive view about your life. Saturday number two, how to have a wonderful love life. Saturday number three, how to have a, faith, uh, a, a, a fulfilling career or whatever. 
Is that what he did? Did he, did, he, did he preach felt needs and maybe throw a verse or two up on the screen? No. What did he do? Look at the end of verse two. It says that he reasoned with them from the what? Shout it out. The scriptures. He didn't open a Bible. Obviously, he unrolled the scroll, but it's the same words that we have today. Amen. Paul honored the word of God in the worship gathering. He didn't come in expecting, hey, I'm just gonna listen to another positive message to make me feel good today, and maybe we'll get to a Bible verse or two or whatever. It's not what he did. He went through the scriptures, and it says in verse three that he, he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So that leads us to our first point, if you're taking notes or the fill-in, if you guys wanna engage with the message and take notes, the note card is on your seats. But Paul proved from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that the historical Jesus is the Christ. Paul took the Hebrew scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, and for three consecutive Saturdays, he got into the Bible and he proved to those who were at that synagogue or those synagogue services that the historical Jesus is the Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I consider it a travesty that liberal theologians today will try to tell us, will assert that the historical Jesus of Nazareth is not the same thing as the mystical Christ figure that the church believes in today. Give me a break. And here's what we do in our churches. We send our young men and our young women to seminary. And they go to these seminaries. You know what's happening in a lot of these seminaries? Our young men and women from the church, they're losing their faith. Because you have these so-called great intellects with all these letters behind their name, and they don't even believe this is the Bible. Right, and they're engaged in quote unquote higher criticism. And they get a lot of their stuff from German theologians that reject that Jesus is the Christ. And they come up with this stupidity that the historical Jesus is not the promised Christ that we believe in or that the apostles proclaimed. It's all nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, the historical Jesus of Nazareth really was born of a virgin. It's true. He really did live a sinless life. Right? He really did do draw-dropping miracles like causing the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to walk, and he really did raise people up from the dead. That's what he did. Eyewitnesses wrote it down. It's there in the scriptures today. Why do we deny this? It's because our hearts are wicked and beyond, beyond wicked. Our hearts are horrible. We cannot submit ourselves to God. We cannot submit ourselves to the word of God. And so at the end of Christ's extraordinary life, what happened? He suffered, he died, and he rose again. Look at this, according to the Hebrew scriptures, according to the Old Testament. Yes, the, the historical Jesus really is the promised Christ. And one of the ways we know this, again, is because Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies written hundreds of years before about what would happen to the Christ, that he would suffer and he would rise from the dead. Paul knew this. And so what does Paul do? He gets back to the Bible. 
And he shows these people from the scriptures <clears throat> how the Christ was supposed to suffer and he was supposed to rise again. So what passages did Paul go to to prove that the Christ had to suffer in their Bibles? Hold your finger, please, in Acts 17 and go all the way back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here because I just... Um, back in April, I think, went verse by verse in in-depth study from Isaiah 53. But what you need to know if you're new to the Bible is as you're turning to the left, you're going back from, um, from the first century, you're going back about 700 plus years. And so the words of the prophet Isaiah were written in the eighth century BC, okay? And so... Look at verse four, if you're looking at Isaiah 53, four, say amen. amen. Check it out. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All right? And so upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. In other words, we've sinned. We deserve punishment. We deserve the wrath of God. But guess what? Jesus came. He took our punishment. And now what do we get? We get peace. I don't know about you. That's a pretty good deal. It's called grace. We sin and we get peace and he gets punished. Why? Because God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son, and he said it 700 years before he came, right in the Bible. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. It says halfway down verse eight that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Now, what happens when you're cut off out of the land of the living? What does that mean? That means you die. And so 700 years before it happened, it's saying right here that the Christ, when he comes, is gonna die. He's gonna suffer and he's gonna die. And by the way, there's no other religious book like this right here. There's no other religious book on the planet that has hundreds of prophecies that were spoken by prophets and then fulfilled literally in history. Hey, this is God's word. Absolutely, 100%. Verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. Wow, Joseph of Arimathea is right there in the Bible. 700 years before Jesus went and his body went to his tomb. With a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, and it goes on and on and on, ladies and gentlemen, as you're turning back to Acts 17, you need to know that unless you're spiritually blind, there is no doubt that Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus. And of course, I'm sure Paul, he had three Saturdays, and I'm sure he didn't have 40 to 45 minutes and a clock ticking down at the back of the synagogue every time he spoke. I'm sure he went on for hours. I won't do that. But I'm sure he also went to Psalm 22, Daniel chapter nine, and other places in the Bible, the Old Testament, to prove that the Christ had to suffer and had to die. But what passage would he turn to from the Old Testament to show that the Christ would have to rise from the dead? 
Psalm 16:10, we'll put it up on the screen. For you, David says, 10th century BC. Okay, so now we're 900 plus years before Christ. And David says, for you, God, will not abandon my soul in Sheol. Here's the prophecy. Or let your, who? Holy one see corruption. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David prophesied that the Holy One, the Christ, would not remain in the grave where his body would rot. No, God would raise him from the dead, spoken over 900 years before it actually even happened. Paul proved. He went back to the Bible. They opened their Bibles in church, and he proved to them from the scriptures that the Christ had to suffer the Christ had to die. The Christ had to rise again. He proved that the historical Jesus is the promised Christ. Now, what's the response of the people to this Bible study? Please look at verse four. Verse four. It says, and some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined, good news, Paul and Silas. Awesome. As did, look at this, a great many of the devout Greeks. This is a lot of people now. And by the way, look at this phrase, devout Greeks. What does that mean? This means that they were God-fearers. They were Gentiles, not Jews, Gentiles who were God-fearers. In other words, they said, forget this nonsense about gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman um, religion and we believe in the God that the Jews are talking about, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're, they're sitting around in the synagogue, isn't this cool? Gentile God-fearers in the synagogue listening to Paul's messages on Saturday, and they come to Christ. A great many of the devout Greeks, and look at this, and not a few of the leading who? The leading women. And so the result of Paul's teaching was that many people turned to Christ, some Jews, many Gentiles, and a good number of leading women in this city. Now, months later, right now we're probably around AD 50, end of AD 50, maybe entering into AD 51, we're not sure. Um, but months later, Paul, chapter 18 of Acts, is gonna be in Corinth. Remember, he goes to Berea, then he goes down to Athens, and he goes over to Corinth. So months later, he's in Corinth, and he's thinking, he's reminiscing about this wonderful time, these three Sabbaths um, that he's sharing the word of God with the people in Thessalonica. And he takes out his pen, he writes this to the Thessalonians. Look at this. This is around AD 51. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the what? The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Ladies and gentlemen, please, please do not listen to those people who will tell you that this is just the product of men. This is not the product of men. Be like the Thessalonians. The, the, Thessalonians who believed that it wasn't the word of men, it's really the word of God. Now, did men write it? Yes, they wrote it, but holy men of God wrote and spoke as they were moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. For we know, please listen, that all scripture, please say the word all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration literally means to be breathed out. What does that mean? That means that God 
breathed out these words in the original manuscripts. What we have here is a treasure. You may have paid $49.99 down at Barnes & Noble, but this book is priceless because it is the breathed-out Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the man, the anthropos, which means human being, so properly interpreted, that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But if you're not opening the Bible, you're not receiving inspiration from God. So open your Bibles. And so God is working in Thessalonica. Remember Acts is like a chessboard? God's moving, a lot of people getting saved in that synagogue. Jews, Greeks, leading women, Holy Spirit's moving. So whose turn is it now to move in verse five? You guessed it, the devil. He never quits. By the way, I can't wait till this guy is thrown in the lake of fire and we don't have to worry about him anymore. Verse five, but the Jews, by the way, not all Jews, because we just read that some Jews came to Christ. This is the unbelieving Jews. But the Jews were jealous. You know, why are all these people going to Paul? They're not coming to hear us anymore. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. <laughs> My thought is, hey, why don't you just debate Paul? If you got a problem with Paul, have a debate with him. The reason they can't debate Paul is because Paul would eat their lunch. So they got to turn to violence. So they found some wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. And look at this, they attacked the house of Jason. Jason, a new convert to Christianity, housing Paul and Silas. And next thing you know, there's a knock on his door, then there's a beating on the door. Next thing you know, the door's kicked in and there's a mob outside. Can you guys imagine your house being attacked by a mob? Listen, it was hard to be a Christian 2,000 years ago. But aren't you glad in 2019, United States of America, we have the freedom to come and gather together in a room like this and open up the scriptures and, and sing to God and worship him and fellowship with one another and learn precepts from his word without any concern at all that the government's gonna kick down these doors or the doors of our houses? That's a wonderful thing. We should be thankful for that. We should be grateful. We should have attitudes of gratitude. Thank you, God. I don't, didn't live 2,000 years ago where they were attacking my house. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they they're not only attacking his house, now they're grabbing him and dragging him outside his own house. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, the magistrates, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. In other words, these men are guilty of treason, and of course, they should be put to death for saying there's another king, having the audacity to say there's another king besides Caesar. Verse eight, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. But the problem is they can't find Paul and Silas. You know, where are they? And so look at verse nine. 
And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest and said, okay, you Christians, give us some money. And by this money, this is a surety that there's not gonna be any more problems with this stuff. Paul and Silas need to leave. So they took security from Jason and the rest of the Christians and then they let them go. Now, in this whole dramatic scene, I wanna draw your attention to one statement that's found at the end of verse six. Okay, the end of verse six the angry crowd went before the magistrates and they shouted, these men have turned the world upside down. In the New American Standard Bible, if you have that version, these men have upset the world. If you have the ESV, KJV, King James, ASV, they all say they've turned the world upside down. Now, if you went home today and you went to your front door and found out that it's not locked and it just opened up and you looked in your house and all the furniture in your home has been turned over and all the drawers have been opened up and emptied out and all your personal stuff is strewn all over your house, I have a question. Please answer out loud, yes or no. Would you be upset? Yeah, you'd be pretty upset. And this is the perception of the unbelievers in Thessalonica that Paul and Silas are going from city to city all over the Roman Empire, and they're turning everything upside down. But ladies and gentlemen, the reality of the matter, the truth of the matter is that Paul and Silas are going in the house, and they're trying to turn the furniture right side up. They're trying to clean everything up. In other words, Paul and Silas are going city to city to city in the Roman Empire, and they're turning people's lives right side up by pointing them to Jesus Christ. And that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, you wanna fill in the blank here. If we choose to trust Christ and follow him, he will turn our lives right side up. Now, this was the experience of, million, of um, well, millions of people over the last 2,000 years, but multiplied thousands of people in the first century. This was their experience right here. So they heard the good news of Jesus. They turned from their sins. They turned to Christ alone. They put their faith in him. The Holy Spirit comes inside of them, washes away their sins, makes them alive spiritually, and gives them meaning and purpose in their life. And the next thing you know, they wanna follow Jesus. And as they follow Jesus and follow his word, what happens is that the Holy Spirit does a work from the inside out. What happens is the Holy Spirit begins slowly but surely to turn their lives right side up. The next thing you know, marriages are restored, families are strengthened, little kids are growing up in godly homes, and these new Christians in the first century, they're no longer being conformed to the world, they're being transformed by the renewal of their minds in the Word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Their lives are being turned right side up and they're proving what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen, I'm not just up here talking. This can be your experience today. If you truly trust Christ and commit your life to follow him, the Holy Spirit will do the same thing in your life, in your marriage, in your family, with your kids that he did 2,000 years ago when Paul and Silas were walking around preaching the gospel. And you need to know that when a life change happens, it causes tension. 
When these thousands and thousands of people were turning to Christ in the first century, it caused tension with unbelievers. Now, thank God some of the unbelievers saw their testimony of the new Christians, and they're like, I'm in, I want this stuff, but a lot of them didn't. And so there was a line that was drawn between the believers and the unbelievers. Why? Because how many of you know that men love darkness more than light? Okay, and so because the unbelievers love their filth, they love their sexual immorality, they love their wild parties, they love their drunkenness, they love their pagan practices of falling down between, before little trinkets of gods and goddesses and making money off that whole racket because they love their lifestyle when all of a sudden they saw the lives of a brand new born again Christian and that person's godly life, they got a little agitated. They're like, what's up with you? Why do you think you're so righteous? You ever heard this before? You know, what are you trying to do? Turn the world upside down? You're not turning my world upside down. But here's my question. Whose lifestyle was upside down, the believers or the unbelievers? Here's another question. What determines whether something is upside down or right side up? What determines whether something is right or wrong? Is it our opinions? Is it what we think? Is it, you know, have you ever heard um, people say this? Well, I sort of feel like, and I'm thinking, uh, we don't really care. <laughs> it's not about what we feel, right? And so what determines what's upside down or, or right side up? What determines what's right or wrong? If you're taking notes, you wanna fill in the blank, here it is, the scriptures, not our opinions, determine what is upside down or right side up. Amen. It's the Bible. It's the scriptures. Why? I already said it. This book is the breathed out word of God. And as God's word, it's the final word concerning how to differentiate between right and wrong. It's right here. The problem is the culture says we don't want that. And so what happens to Christians? A lot of Christians, they become like dead fish. Any dead fish can float downstream with the current of the culture. It takes a fish that's alive to swim upstream and go counterculture. And that's what I'm trying to ask the congregations to do this weekend in all of our services is to, man, get some gumption and start swimming upstream. Start living for Christ openly without embarrassment. But if we don't know the scriptures, we risk living our lives upside down. If we don't know the Bible, we risk living our lives in error. I'm gonna ask you to hold your finger in Acts 17 and now turn over to Mark 12. Mark 12. I wanna illustrate what I'm saying to you guys through the life of Jesus in one of his encounters with the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees, if you're new to the Bible, they were the um, aristocrats of the day. They were the priestly tribe. They were the ones in charge of the temple. And they were the ones who were in cahoots with the Romans. These were the rich guys, you know, the elite. And even though they accepted the Torah, first five books of Moses, they rejected anything supernatural. So they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they decide, hey, um, we know Jesus believes in the resurrection, and so we're gonna challenge him on this topic. 
the topic of the resurrection. And so right now, if you're looking at Mark 12, 18, just say amen. amen. Okay, and the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. You die, right, you're done. And I'll spare you of the joke of that's why they were sad, you see, okay, because you've heard that before. And they asked him a question saying, verse 19, teacher, well, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's the law of leveret marriage. You can read it later in the law of Moses. Verse 20, and they're, they're kind of elbowing each other and they're laughing under their breath, right? Because they're gonna come up with this idiotic, stupid scenario here. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, no kids. And the second brother took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third took her, likewise, inference, leaving no offspring, he's dead too. Verse 22, and the seven, okay, so all seven brothers married this woman and died. Okay, I think if I'm brother number five, there's no way I'm going near this woman, <laughs> ever. Something's wrong here. I don't know what in the world's going on behind closed doors, but obviously she's like a serial killer, right? <laughs> but in verse 22, and the seven left no offspring, and last of all, the woman also died. Okay, here, here's the question. They think they really got Jesus here. By the way, you can't stump Jesus. He's God in the flesh, all right? Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, well, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, woo put your seatbelts on. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they win, not if, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the Bible? You know, open your Bibles. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Hey, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You are quite Wrong. Okay, so if you're new to the Bible, stay with me here. Moses, living around 1400, 1500 BC, we've all seen, right, the, the, the story of the burning bush. You've either read it or you watched Charleston Heston Easter time, right? And so there's Moses, and God is talking to him through the burning bush. And God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you're new to the Bible, I gotta explain that Abraham lived around 19 to 2000 years BC. And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. All three of these men lived and died many years before Moses was ever born. And now here's Moses talking to God through a fiery bush, and God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. No, 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 no. I am their God. Because why? 
These guys are still alive. What does that mean? There's life after death. What does that mean? Sadducees, you're wrong. That's what it means. So there really is supernatural. There really is angels. There really is life after death. There really is a resurrection. I want you to look again at Jesus' words, and it's also on, on your note card. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Why? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What does Jesus use as the standard as far as figuring out what's right or wrong? This book. This book that our culture hates, by the way. Right? But if we don't know the scriptures, we risk being in error about so many things. Let me just give you some hot button examples here. If we don't know the scriptures, we risk being wrong and buying into the lie of the theory of evolution. Which, by the way, is being pumped into our kids for many, many years. And so for those who believe in macro evolution, I'd have to say to you what Jesus said to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God? What do the scriptures declare? It's the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, either you accept that as God's word, or you try to explain it away, right, with either macroevolution or even some Christians who proclaim theistic evolution. Give me a break. No. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it. He spoke, and it happened. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Something can't come from nothing, Amen. right? Material, um, material things haven't always existed. No, they're the effect of a cause. Who's the cause? God, the first cause, the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, as Thomas Aquinas would say. God spoke, and what happened? From the invisible realm, God spoke, and the material realm, the universe, came into being. And so all you gotta do is look at the design, the intricate design of our solar system, our planet, even our human body, and a million other things, and wherever there's design, I don't care what so-and-so says or how many letters are after his name, whenever you see design, there's got to be a designer. He exists, he's alive, he's real. He is our God. But if you don't know the scriptures, man, you risk being in error about so many things, like, like believing that some people are superior while other people are inferior. You kidding me? Some people are superior while other people are inferior? You know what that leads to? What that leads to is racism and slavery and unchecked, eventually it'll lead to genocide as we saw in Hitler's final solution with the whole Jewish race and the killing of six million Jews. And yes, six million Jews were killed. It's a fact of history. Don't try to rewrite the, the history books or be a revisionist. And so for those who believe that any human being is inferior or worthless, I'd have to say to you, as Jesus said, to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you're wrong for you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? The scriptures declare this, check it out. God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. What does that mean? That means that all people, regardless of who they are, or what they have done, or what color skin they have, all people are made in the image of God. That means that their work is immeasurable. You see, but here's the problem. In the church, we get two, two words confused. And I don't want it to be confused in this church, okay? Unworthy and worthless do not mean the same thing. But they're confused in the church. And people write books and they get it all messed up. No, no, no. Unworthy? Yeah. All of us are unworthy because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Worthless? No. We're not worthless because we're made in the image of God, and as I've already said, that means we have immeasurable value. So man, if you believe that there's a certain race that's superior than another race, you're a racist, and you need to repent. And turn from that sin, and believe that all of us are created in the image of God. And by the way, I'm not sure if anyone's gonna clap for this one, but since he's a wise creator, I think he knows what he's doing when he signs a person's gender. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, scripture presents a normative connection between a person's gender identity and their biological sex. God created mankind in his own image in the image of God, he created them. And what's the next three words? There's not, you know, 65 different genders, by the way. There's male and there's female. And so we don't have the right to change what God has determined. And certainly, listen to this, a child does not have the maturity or capacity to choose their own gender. Right? It, it's not about what we feel. We live in a fallen world, we have a sin nature. So all of us feel different things that are not godly. And so what do we have to do? We have to stop living by our feelings. Well, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like. And we have to get back to this book and say, God says, God says, God says. And we need to just conform our lives to, the, to what God says. And so, and by the way, there's so much more to say about that topic. And maybe I'll, I'll dive into it deeper at another time. But if we don't know the scriptures, we risk being in error about so many things like being sexually active outside of the marriage covenant. Got really quiet that time. <laughs> right, for those who believe in quote unquote free sex, I'd have to say to you, like Jesus said to the Sadducees, is this, is this not the reason you are wrong? For you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So what do the scriptures declare? Very, very, clear in the second chapter of Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his girlfriend? Is that what it says? Hold fast to another man's wife? No, hold fast to his wife. And they, the married couple, shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so the one flesh relationship is exclusively for a man and a woman who have entered into a marriage covenant and those two people can be naked before and with one another and not be ashamed. And by the way, the author of Hebrews agrees with this in the New Testament. Marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so, hey, the scriptures, the scriptures celebrate sex. God created it. By the way, don't you think he's a great designer and great creator? He's a great creator. Okay, and so God created it. And by the way, there's nothing dirty or nasty about it in the marriage covenant. He's a pure, holy creator. And so if God created it and it's celebrated within marriage, but, but you also need to know the other side of the coin, which our culture laughs at, and that is that the scriptures condemn sexual activity outside the marriage covenant Amen. in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we have to make sure that we're, we're, we're honoring the Lord with our actions in this area. And, and I would just say, man, why would you wanna be judged? Last word in Hebrews 13, four. Why would you wanna be judged? God doesn't wanna judge you. God loves you. But moms and dads, what are you doing if you're cooking dinner at night and you're on the phone and you look over and your little toddler's running over to the hot stove? What are you gonna do, moms and dads? You're gonna fall over yourselves and do whatever it takes to save your kid. Right, and so this is what I'm doing this morning or this afternoon now, what I'm doing is, is the most loving thing I can do as a pastor, right? It's the pastor who doesn't love his flock that avoids all these topics and never talks about it. And by the way, we have every right. Let me ask you this. Is our culture loud and proud of all the things that they do? It's in our face every single day and it's in the face of your kids, moms and dads. And so if they're loud and proud, why can't we be loud and proud about the Bible? Why can't we be loud and proud about what God says? So we're supposed to go in a corner and be so careful. Be careful, man, you gotta tiptoe around these, these, these issues. No, the most loving thing we can do is speak the truth in love so that people can understand what God says and so they can avoid judgment and not put their hand on the hot stove. One more. If we don't know the scriptures, we risk being in error about abortion. You see, those who believe in a woman's right to choose to take the life of the unborn child, again, I gotta say to you what Jesus would say to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you are wrong, neither knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, the scriptures that declare this, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so who knits us together in our mother's womb? God. Not outside the womb, in the womb, God is doing a work. So any woman who thinks that she has the right to do whatever she wants to do with her own body should understand from both science and scripture that what God is knitting together in her womb, that child has their own body. And we don't have the right to take the life 
of that unborn child. And I just gotta plead and beg with you. If you're here and you're pregnant and you're thinking about, I don't know if I'm, what I'm gonna do with this child. Or if you're listening um, later on the podcast or you're watching on Facebook and you're, you're a young lady and you don't really know if you wanna keep your child, please, I beg you, keep your child. There are so many Christian parents that would love to adopt your kid. Get counseling, go to CareNet. Thank God for Sue Chess and for her staff at CareNet. Come here, talk to one of us. But man, man, let that kid live. Now, if you hear what I'm saying and you say, man, he's radically different than the culture, you're right. Some may think I'm trying to turn the culture upside down, I'm not. I'm trying to turn the culture right side up. I'm trying to turn it right side up by pointing people to God's word, which is the final word, as far as what's right or wrong. And so as we turn back to Acts 17, I'm out of time, so let me just finish this up. Here's the question, what should we do? What should we do? The answer is we should be Bereans. Bereans. Okay, so Acts 17, verse 10 the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, praise the Lord by the way, were more noble than those in Thessalonica, speaking of the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica. So these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, because they received the word, I love this, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They're checking Paul out. And if Paul needs to be checked out, please check me out. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, praise the Lord, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so why were the Bereans considered more noble-minded than the, Thessal the Thessalonians? It's because they examined the word of God every single day. Here's your last point. Be a Berean. Eagerly receive the word of God and examine it daily. And because I'm out of time, let me just say this. That if you and I make a choice to eagerly receive the Bible and examine it every single day like the Bereans, we're gonna have lives that are right side up. Not perfect, we're gonna mess up, we're gonna need forgiveness, Thank God he's merciful, but we're gonna have lives that honor God. But if we are apathetic towards this book, we don't receive it, we don't examine it every single day. Let's say once a week, maybe we, we open it up in church, but not during the week or whatever. You're gonna struggle, man, you're gonna have a life that's upside down and you're gonna be in error about a lot of things. And so last few verses and we're done. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so God moves on the chessboard in Berea. Satan's moving now in verse 13. Verse 14, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. And so next week, Paul is in the famed city of Athens, standing on Mars Hill before the intellectual elites of the day. I can't wait to share that scripture with you guys next week.